This production is brought to you by What triggers arousal in us as individuals is completely unique. Taking note of these sources of stimulation can actually pave the way to truly understanding ourselves as sexual beings. We become more direct in intimacy with a vocabulary built to communicate what evokes pleasure in us. But what if that thing that turns us on is a little different, a little extreme, a little taboo, or even a little dangerous? Look, some of us are happy to ask for it in every intimate encounter, but some of us are quiet about it, shy about it, feel a certain shame about it. This is where the work of a professional dominatrix comes in. To those who do not share the passion for submission, this work is so very misunderstood. The dominatrix is a service provider who specializes in exploring the limits of a person's pain, emotional or financial threshold. This could be in hopes to secure a sexual satisfaction or a spiritual one. The pleasure of surrender can be many things, but it is most certainly very potent. Joining me to answer your questions about professional domination are Mistress Natalie and Ava O. The red umbrella became the global symbol for sex worker rights in 2001, when it was carried through the streets of Venice in protest against the abuse experienced by their community. Shot here in the heart of New York City, on location at the Museum of Sex, I'm Laura Desiree, and this is Red Umbrella Talk. The following discussion on professional domination features questions and curiosities submitted by you, the general public, to our Red Umbrella Talk email and social media inboxes. I need to thank both of you right out of the gate, first and foremost, for being here today at the Museum of Sex to have this discussion. I'm so excited. Thank you for having us. Thank you very much. So these were questions all about professional domination. They were submitted over our social media accounts and to our email inbox. Let's get started then uh, asking both of you to perhaps describe the jobs that you do. Before I even get to these questions, uh, I know that this profession in particular can be so varied and, and so nuanced. So I'd love to know from each of you how you approach your work. Can we start with you then, Mistress Natalie? Of course. Well, I got started 28 years ago. So over the decades that I've been doing this, really what I do has developed and changed and morphed quite a bit. At this point in my career, I'm really looking to take on people who have a true curiosity for kink and BDSM, and my particular niche is probably those who are really looking to use it for a holistic, healthy way of enhancing their life. So I have a form that people have to fill out, and I go through that, and there's a sort of getting to know each other phase, and then if I think we'd be compatible, we go forward and the things that can happen in our sessions are so vast and so deep because my interests are really, really varied. So if it's fetishes or um, domination in a more traditional sense with power exchange or corporal punishment, sissification, 
I don't have a lot of restrictions on the areas that I like to play in. But you're looking for less of the tourist mm -hmm. to, to this experience. And they could be a novice. It's yeah. just um, somebody who really has an interest in it where they feel that submitting in whatever form to them is, is something that they need. Ooh, Eva. <laughs> so when I first started, I started out in a dungeon and the format to what I do now looks very, very different. Back then, people would come in even just off the street. There would be a small negotiation. What are they interested in? And you'd craft a scenario based upon whatever that they brought to the table within your skill set and the spaces that were available to you. Nowadays, that's also transitioned as time we shift, our interests shift, the way that we want to format the business shifts. And right now, I don't do the hours, the two hours, the however many hours I used to do when I was dungeon-based. I also have an applications process, and also I do like one day, two days, three days, and more of a lifestyle exchange. So also people who are invested, yeah. I don't know whether I would necessarily take it from a holistic perspective. <laughs> I'm very much into entertainment, it's just fine. <laughs> but um, it's definitely more committed folks, I guess. So how many years in total between the two of you are we, are we working with today? This is wonderful. I have 10, so you have 28. I have 28. Oh my goodness. This is going to be phenomenal. <laughs> two people to talk about this. Let's do it. Okay, first question. What are professional dominatrixes trained in, and what do you do in the instance of an in-session emergency? So I'm guessing if something goes wrong when it gets physical, what are you trained in? Uh, so when I started at the dungeon, I went in with nothing. <laughs> A general interest in the power dynamic and not much else. And you kind of shadow other mistresses and you sit in on their sessions and due to their generosity, their knowledge is imparted upon you. And then also the headmistress will start to create a little bit of a format for you to learn the various things. But every dungeon's different, every pathin is different. You can do your own kind of education. They're, we're not unionized, <laughs> there's no curriculum. It's really up to the individual and their drive towards creating a fuller business or a skill set, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I think a lot of the things that we're trained in, we train ourselves to a, a certain degree. Uh, I too started in a dungeon for a number of years and you learn sort of basic safety, um, how to cut somebody out of bondage that may be too tight, implements that you need for that, um, things to, to look for in session if you're doing you know, breath play and mm -hmm. really checking in and having that communication but as you develop and as you go out on your own and you don't have, say, the safety net of knowing there are other people there to help you, really learning to navigate a way where if something goes wrong, not just in session, say, physically, but if the person seems a little off or isn't right, you kind of have to research what you think the best way would be and what would the safest way be for you to get out of a situation or be able to help somebody if they were in distress. What are some of those options? What would, what would that look like in, in different situations? Well, you know, for me personally, uh, health and safety is always first. So I know, I know a lot of people would be concerned if, you know, their, their sub, you know, somebody found out that they were there. I, I personally feel I don't care what the aftermath is, like if the person needs 911 or medical attention or something like that, you just get it. There is no, there is no question about that.
and also having some basic skills, you know, CPR, keeping things on hand for people if they're faint or, or lightheaded, and also knowing about the person before you see them. I always ask if they have any medical conditions that I need to be aware of, any medications that they're on, are you claustrophobic, anything that I could that could trigger something, words, anything of that nature, and also giving them a safe word for at any point during the scene, whether something verbally or physically is not feeling right, and being super aware. Sometimes they say everything is fine, but all of a sudden I notice they're breaking out in a sweat. And you're like, okay, it's not hot in here, what's going on? So something there, something is going on. So you really have to constantly be watching and attentive, not just to the play between you, but these subtle cues that, that are going on. Yeah, no kidding. I mean, it's, it's a constant alert to check in. What's your approach then if we're in mental and emotional states? There's a lot to watch out for in the person in front of us, within ourselves, the space in between us, and caring for that before and after. Have you learned over time, or I guess observed over time, the way a person may communicate pain um. in the various ways and when it may be <laughs> cause for alarm? I mean, it fascinates me, truly. Well, usually there's, even if a person, in my situation, um, is, say, gagged yes. and blindfolded and bound right. with mitt, can't snap or they can't, you know, say the, whatever the safe word is, I usually give them the, give me some short, short, sharp, sharp grunts or something that doesn't sound like regular moaning. So even if I can't see their eyes or see what's going on, I usually give them various options yeah. to be able yeah. to communicate. Yeah. And it, and so it doesn't get to it doesn't get to that 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 point. Yeah. So you have a little bit of a head. You have to build a new language in that sense. Wow. Mm -hmm. With the available faculties. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if there's one answer for this. How does a typical session with you play out? Is that such a thing? Does that exist? How am I feeling today? Yeah. <laughs> what am I going to have for lunch? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I think things shift uh, and very much also over time. Again, based upon where we are and what we want, it depends about what people are coming to you with. The variation, especially if your interests are wide-ranging and you're happy to dive into a lot of different kinks, it's just the options are, are limitless in a sense. And, and not only within the gear itself, it depends like, very much. I mean, I, I joke about what we're having for lunch. Like, where is my headspace at and where is yours and how is that going to develop the psychology that comes out of the interaction as well? You could say that there, it begins with a negotiation. How, how are we today? Let's check in. Let's see what you would like to explore, what may be the triggers around that, the limitations around that for both of us, and how do we format that? Let me think about how I'm going to bring that into a set period of time and prepare maybe the things I need to prepare, enact something, bring you back out of it. Mm -hmm. So I guess that could be a general format, but in terms of what the specific things that are happening within it, it's really, it, yeah, it's beautiful. As big as the imagination. Yeah. Would that be a conversation then that is happening every time, even if it's a client you've been working with long term? Do you try and do that gauge at the beginning to see what the, the session or scene is going to be? With, with some people, yes. Even if I know them for a long time, I do like to check in. Where are you today? What is your body feeling like mm -hmm. today? Because just because you were able to do or handle or interested in something on one day, your mindset can be completely different on another day. And if 
they also have varied interests mm -hmm. that could really shift where it's going. And for other people who really prefer not to have that dynamic, they really want you to just go and have no input. Once you know them really well, you start in whatever area you want and see how it goes, uh, depending on their reactions to the things that you're doing. So you're building a relationship, right? And a body of knowledge about the person in front of you, so. Very detailed the whole way through. I would imagine this is a question that applies to new clients looking to work with you as well as perhaps long-term people that you've built this relationship with. How do you vet the mental health of a client? <laughs> How are you Is today? that your responsibility? Well, I was just going to say, I, I am not qualified to vet anybody's mental health. I have no degrees. But obviously, there are protocols in place to be able to make sure that you feel that the person that you're going to be playing with is you know, safe and sane. We both have a, a protocol that we, we go through with our clients. And after years of experience, you really do learn certain triggers or things, red flags to look for if you feel that maybe the person is coming to you for not the, the best intention. After you session with them once, you will begin to know the person a little bit more and always in the relationship as it begins to grow and develop, you're, you're assessing them mm -hmm. and seeing why they're coming to do this. Are they coming to this for appropriate reasons? And you sometimes have to make a decision that you know, this is not somebody that you would want to see based on the interactions. I'm curious to know what those red flags might be. Oh, it, it, could, be, it could be a lot of things. Yeah. Uh, everything from like sort of stalkerish kind of behavior yeah. or them not respecting boundaries, yeah. getting the sense that they're internalizing the activities in a very self-deprecating way. And at least for me personally, it's really important that no matter how humiliating or painful or degrading what I do is, that they actually leave feeling elevated and positive from the experience. And if I feel for any reason that that's not the case, then that's obviously somebody I would not, I would not want to see. We do have a wonderful question on aftercare, which I know is so important in your profession, but how do you vet the mental health of your clients, Ava? I, I also believe there's this debate that goes on, or this question that goes on within BDSM, where people ask if it's therapy, and I see it more as therapeutic in the sense that any human interaction can be therapeutic when they feel understood and yeah, heard. But in terms of me ascertaining their mental health, I, I more look out for my safety first at the beginning stages. And so I normally would go, because I do longer term things, I'll go for lunch with somebody and it won't be an entirely obvious interview <laughs> process, but it will be me asking where they're coming from, what they're expecting from me and seeing how they interact with me to make sure that their boundaries are going to stay in a place as much as they can that I need them to because it becomes a very taxing situation for me if it doesn't. And once I feel like that's in a good place, then I can start a session with them. And the relationship grows, you become more aware, and you look out for the things. So <laughs> that, and it does happen that people will try to push the boundaries because it's a very personal interaction and it touches on some very deep emotional spaces that a lot of people maybe don't necessarily 
go to or share with others because they're hiding these aspects of themselves. So you become this one kind of tether for all of that attention. But yeah, it's just this constant process of understanding what my boundaries are, theirs, figuring out what that looks like between us. Supreme vulnerability. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's really fun and wonderful to engage in if you're that way inclined, but it comes with its own risks, obviously. I think the question itself can go so much more beyond just vetting the mental health based on the kinds of interactions that an individual is looking for. I mean, is there ever a red flag in someone's building dependency upon you or someone maybe putting their their own life situation at risk just being, you know, uh, the, the purchaser or the, the, the buyer of these experiences? Does that ever weigh on you? Like, I know financial domination is a form of... Uh, you know, domination within your business. And I often wonder, is there ever a moment where you have to, I guess, keep a, a boundary with the client just for their own sake? Or again, is this not, we're all adults and this is not your responsibility? No, I do think it, we have a responsibility to be ethical yes. in, in what we do and really understand who we're interacting with and, again, the, the intention behind mm. the, the interactions. I know over the years as I've gotten to know people, because there is such a trust and such an intimacy, and I've been told many times that um, my subs, that I know them better than anybody else. And if something does come up where I feel that real help is needed, um, I suggest it, you know? And I know that that could interfere with the relationship, uh, but I would feel that that's my job as, as a person to be able to, to tell this person, look, I think you really need to speak to someone else. Uh, I, am, I can't be that person for you. I can support you. I can give you uh, a place where I can accept all of these things about you, but I can't fix you when it comes to some real psychological problems. Yeah. You know, I asked, um, I poked some specific mental health professionals to weigh in and contribute questions to this episode specifically. I received one from someone who works as a full-time therapist, and she wanted to know, what are your thoughts on trauma play? Do you ever enact uh, a, an individual's past trauma? How do you go about doing that safely, smartly, respectfully? So I would say that I haven't come across people who specifically said this one thing happened to me and I want to do this exact scenario. I know that this definitely happens, but I haven't had that. I've had aspects of certain things want to be utilized within our interactions. And so how do I feel about that? I feel like we come to this space as a space of exploration and understanding that it's not a, thera a therapy environment and that we're touching on these things, whether we want to regain control, whether we want to just interact with them in a, in a slightly different way. And it's I'm there to play with somebody, you know, as opposed to manage how that looks for, for them. And I would be very happy to be there for them And as we break down the scene for both of us after, prior, before, after. But yeah, if, if it cracks something, and <laughs> they, they need to speak to somebody who can break that down properly. That's not necessarily, I feel my responsibility. And I'm very happy to also recommend them to certain people. And nowadays we have wonderful resources where it's the kink aware professionals and that have international, like I found people in Australia, therapists in Australia for people. And I guess as long as we have a body of knowledge that can back up the things that might come outside our scope, 
that's as much as I feel that I can contribute. And they're for different reasons. I've definitely had people come to me asking for specific variations of reenactments of traumatic experiences. Sometimes, interestingly enough, I didn't know that it was a real experience until later on. So they've come to me and they say they want to do this particular yeah. scenario, not letting me know that this was something that yeah. in some way, shape, or form really did happen to them. They tell you afterwards. Um, I have been made aware after our relationship grew and, you know, obviously in those circumstances it was a very positive experience for them to be able to relive this and sort of make this trauma their own and process it in a positive way. And then I have had other people come to me right off the bat and tell me. Usually in those circumstances, if I do not have a long established relationship with them, I will not take that on because I have absolutely no way of knowing if this is going to be a positive or negative for them. I know nothing about the person. If they come to me after we already have a very established relationship, um, I am willing to entertain those particular requests with a lot of before, during, and after checking in, knowing the gravity of what I'm doing and the it's importance just... of what I'm doing. So if I know right off the bat someone's like, I had this traumatic experience and I want to relive it, it's usually uh, someone I won't say. Um, but again, I have done this with, with people in, in the right circumstance and have luckily had some very positive results. I've had also similarity uh, in the fact that a scene will play out and further down the line, <laughs> things will reveal themselves. Yeah. How, how has that made you feel? You know, mixed, depending on the person. Yeah. You know, I would like to know in advance because obviously it makes me want to treat it with, with much more care, even more yeah. care than I normally would, understanding this is a, a real traumatic event for, for the person. In other circumstances, uh, I'm grateful that they trusted me, yeah. that I was the person. Um, you know, they had been in traditional therapy and had sort of been carrying this with them for, for a long time. And after they got to know me, after our relationship was there for several years, they kind of brought this out and that I was the one that they, they trusted and felt comfortable to, to help them with this. It's, it's, a, it's a, a route to a healing of sorts that you end up being a part of with them. Yeah, we've, we've got some questions about the healing aspect of it and whether you've heard from people you've worked with about how it has improved, altered, impacted their lives, aside from just, yeah, the, the kicks of a really good time with a really freaky dominatrix. Have you heard from people that have shared how that session and how your work has changed their life? I think joy should not be underestimated either, though. Agreed. Agreed. <laughs> I, mean, I, I think adults need play yeah. and entertainment and fun, and we don't do that no. nearly enough yeah, or prioritize right. the fun aspect of you know, this play kind together. of play or any mm. kind of play. Yeah. I think it's mm. super, super important. You know, specifically for me because of my own sort of health and fitness journey, I've really started to draw a lot of parallels between mm. BDSM and kink and other sort of ways that people improve their life, whether it's working out or meditation or breath work or sensory deprivation tanks. Mm. And I started seeing these parallels of people coming to me, telling me that they were feeling the same way that people would say they would feel after yoga or it's been a wonderful experience, which is why I started refocusing and 
my, my kink on these beneficial aspects of it. There's this whole chemical release that happens in your brain with dopamine and endorphins that happens not just when you go for a run, let's say, like a runner's high, um, but when you participate in, in BDSM. So there's also the sense of accomplishment, like I'm strong, I got through this challenge, I could do this, I could do anything. If I could do this, I can do anything. So you're putting yourself in a safe, controlled environment where you're being stressed moderately and you have the positive context and intention behind it. And then on the other end of it, you're like, wow, I'm stronger than I thought. Right. Are, are submissives brave? So, <laughs> is there, is yeah. there a bravery? That so, I think so. And, and people do this in all other areas yeah. of life. Yeah. And unfortunately, because this is kink and it's sex and there's pain involved, people don't really understand that it's doing the same things that we get doing a lot of other quote-unquote healthy things that people do in, in vanilla life. But it might be more fun. And yeah. we wear way better clothes. <laughs> <laughs> way better. Let's be honest. The materials are way better, right? Love it. How does your knack, it says talent, but I'm going to go with knack. How does your knack for domination influence or impact your actual sex life? So being in this profession, is this, is this you? Is this the, the dynamic you always wish to <laughs> experience <laughs> in intimacy. Who gets to go first? <laughs> Who's going to show their cards first, right? Well, I, I will say since I started doing this when I was 18, you know, it obviously has impacted my sexual growth and development over the years. I have had relationships that have been strictly vanilla, and I have had relationships that, that are a mix of both. I think really the, the takeaway for me sexually is because I have been exposed to so much <laughs> over, over the years, it really just makes me the kind of person in my, in my own relationships that's open to a lot. Whether, and kink does not have to be a part of it. People do think, at least for me personally, my relationships do not have to involve kink. Sometimes having the relief of not being in control <laughs> is, is really nice. So I could, I could go e either way. I think the openness is definitely a beautiful thing that comes from being involved in the sex industry in general. And also, I mean, I used to escort and I used to do a lot of other different things within the industry. So availability of knowledge has definitely informed a lot of the potential. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Again, back to the fun thing. But I think uh, maybe some very obvious takeaways, not only for me sexually, relationship-wise, but in the way that I navigate space in general, might be how much I'm able to think about what it is that I am actually interested in or might want to explore and how do I vocalize that and how do I assert that. I think I didn't have as much practice around that before I entered the industry. And because you have to negotiate so much all the time, you learn how to quickly try to identify where you're at, where they might be at, and how do we mediate that. And that's probably been a really helpful skill, sexually or otherwise. You work with such specifics in individuals that I would imagine you, you reflect upon yourself and, and begin to find your own specifics and look for those in relationships and with others. distort them. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, love, I love this conversation so much. I'm so happy that both of you are here. I do want to ask, however, this was a question that came in. I, I 
perhaps both of you want to answer specifically what some of the extremes are that you may handle or, or cater to or provide or however you want to go about that. The extremes being physical exchanges, physical experiences. Is there anything that should be off the table completely when someone comes to a dom and says, I want to experience this? Is there anything that should just be absolutely canceled before it's even entertained, where we say, we're not, we're not doing that? Do you have your own list of limits of where you say, we don't entertain that? I think that we all obviously will have our own limitations, whether that looks small to one person and large to another. Yeah. It's very hard to say. Um, I think there's a wider ethical question as to whether and how much of a say an individual has over <laughs> what they want to have done to them. And that's not only for within our industry, but that's for people and how they want to treat their lives in general. Mm -hmm. So I think. I think if the there's two consenting partners and it's not hurting anybody else yeah. outside of those two consenting partners, then there shouldn't be a limit. But as other, other than that, you know, everybody, it's very individualized. Let's end it on aftercare. So, uh, of course, physical aftercare, but the mental, leaving that subspace that you hear about. The, for those who don't know, I, I would love your definitions of subspace as well and, and integrating or returning to your waking life, your real life, the life that you need to return to when a session ends. I think the way that Natalie was describing how you get all of these dopamine and endorphin rushes is probably the easiest way for people to understand what subspace might look like, or even top space, you know, mm -hmm. dom, yeah. And so we experience dom drop also. So after this rush of it, like intense emotion and physical also, experience, there's a drop for everybody involved and how do we care for that? I mean, it, everyone has their different things, but it's also about watching it throughout. It's not necessarily just about that for me. For me, mentally, it's about checking in right then and then I kind of give people a, a little bit of a gap to process and then I ask usually people to write out kind of mm -hmm. how, how they processed it, how they're feeling about it, what may have happened for them a couple of days later and then maybe we can revisit that later. That's kind of a process that I have. But yeah, and then I go to the spa. <laughs> <laughs> and I laugh with people who do what I do. They get a best-selling novel out of it because they've written about the whole journey. <laughs> yeah. Those things are what help me. Uh -huh. Yeah, but um, everybody's going to find different configurations, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah it, it really is very individual and you have to kind of get to know the person because there is, there's, the, the sort of subspace can be like that endorphin rush or some people mm -hmm. equate it to being in a flow state where they're super concentrated and focused and in the moment, which is mm. so hard to do mm -hmm. in the, you know, in our world, there's no phones, no this, you're really concentrating. So however somebody, and some people almost see it as a spiritual mm -hmm. uh, space. I so, I mean, it really totally depends on the person. And the same with aftercare. For some people, they need minimal aftercare, and they don't have a big drop. For other people, they, they need a lot. Uh, guilt comes up, all of these sort of other feelings, and some people need aftercare, a lot of aftercare, directly after the session. So you have to kind of plan for that once you know them. Like, it takes them a long time to be able to like put on their clothes and get dressed and face the world. You know, it could be a half an hour or so, and you have to make sure that you understand that that 
time needs to be built in. <laughs> to the schedule? You know, you can't, you can't just like kick them out the door where they're yeah. disheveled and unfocused right, right. and they're like hovered up in a little oh. ball or whatever, whatever it may be. Like you have to be really aware. Um, and like you, I do like to check in afterwards um, in some way, shape or form. Some people need a lot more aftercare, you know, validation of their performance. Oh. Like that's essential for them. And, and other people, you know, they can come in, they have their time with you and you like don't need to really communicate time. or anything. <laughs> they, do not, they do not need it. So it's extraordinarily individual and you just have to be aware of, of who you're dealing with and, and what they need. We're talking the level of being able to analyze an individual that I would expect like an FBI interrogator <laughs> to have. The ability to, to pick up on so many languages that we create as human beings as we express ourselves. It's phenomenal. It really is. So with I, better outfits. <laughs> with better outfits. And heels. Uh, you know, I did have a question about how you file your taxes as a dominatrix. I have and a person. You have, I have a person. Well, I, I um, you know, I actually do have a life coaching certification and a personal training and a yoga certification, and I started a company, Kinky Coaching, so it's sort of kink and life coaching. So it's very easy for me to just put all of my work, whether it's more dom than coaching, all in the same sort of okay. bracket. Yeah. And I guess that would have to do with the fact that you're in this market, whereas the market I'm in sex work is decriminalized. Exactly. Yeah, I have to step around some things to, yeah. to make it a little bit more, yeah. you know, unfortunately, I mean, I wish I could just say dominatrix on my, yeah. on my tax returns, they would not accept that, so. Yeah. Um, Meanwhile, I, I selected sex work. Isn't yeah. that amazing? That's so great. Why can't I have that? Making it so much easier. Thank you. Thank you both so much Thank for today's you. insight and for answering these questions. Thank you. Thank you. I hope all of you watching, listening, I hope you loved it. Uh, as a contribution to the community today's episode, we have made a donation to the Free Speech Coalition. Please do check them out online and get all the information about the amazing endeavors that they're behind. Uh, we'll see you next time for Red Umbrella Talk. Thank <laughs> you.